0: If you would turn to Luke chapter twenty, we're continuing our trek through Luke on our way to celebrating Easter in a few months. One of the things about preaching um, expositional messages through the Bible or through the book, a book of the Bible. Is that you end up talking about things that you would not necessarily be drawn to talk about. You end up uh, focusing on things that you wouldn't necessarily uh, think might be important in different ways. And yet the Lord knows exactly what we need to talk about and what we need to focus on. And so that's the value of the scriptures and reading all the Bible and thinking through all of it is that we actually hear what's important to God when we read the Bible. Um, yesterday I was talking with Charlie and he was talking about uh, believers in Scotland and how a lot of them have experienced various things in their lives that cause them to see authority in a negative light. And they typically think, I guess, or often think, I might should say, that authority is um, most often abused and therefore i'm sure it's probably difficult and i think that's what charlie was highlighting is that there can be a difficulty in embracing authority submitting to authority seeing authority as a good thing and yet we have to realize that there is no life without authority i mean ultimately god is the authority right and so there is no such thing as life without authority and yet Um, There are those kinds of perspectives and those kinds of experiences. We've all had bad experiences with uh, abuse of authority in various ways. And we can look at what's going on in our government right now and say, I think there's a lot of abuse, abuse of authority right now that's happening, corruption and various things in various ways. And so it's important to think about the issue of authority because the issue of authority is very much related to the issue of salvation. And that's what hopefully we'll see as we go through this uh, passage of Scripture, verses 1 through 19 of Luke 20. In 1 Kings 10, let me just mention this, the Queen of Sheba goes to see uh, Solomon. And she sees all the glory of his kingdom and hears his wisdom and is just overwhelmed with all that she sees and hears. And at one point, what she says is, she says essentially, um God has loved Israel by giving you to be their king. A king is someone in authority. And so the Bible in a lot of different ways argues that authority isn't inherently bad. In fact, authority, good authority, is an expression of love, love from God. And so what we find in chapter 20 in this passage is there's the issue of authority that's being raised, and the religious leaders are having a hard time with Jesus, who is exercising some authority, and it challenges all of us to ask ourselves the question, who has the right to initiate change or to exercise control over your life? Who has the right to initiate change or exercise control over your life? And that's the same question I have to ask myself. So with that in mind, with that question in mind, let's read together verses 1 through 19 of Luke 20. It says, On one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. And they spoke, saying to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question, and you tell me, Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? They reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from men... All the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine grower so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty handed. And he proceeded to send another slave and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And he proceeded to send a third and this one also they wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another saying, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, May it never be. But Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that, that he spoke this parable against them. This story, at this point, is in the middle of Passion Week. On Sunday of Passion Week, Jesus enters into Jerusalem riding on the back of a donkey. On Monday, he enters the temple and cleanses the temple. He casts out all the money changers and those who are buying and selling, and he drives them out. On Tuesday, he's in the temple teaching, and that's when these uh, religious leaders come and confront Jesus. So he's ridden into town, being worshipped as the Messiah by the crowds. He cleanses the temple, which was no small thing in the eyes of the religious leaders. And so there's this representative group of men from the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling Uh, body of the Jews, and they come to Jesus, and they confront him with the basic question, who gave you the right to do that? Who gave you the right, the authority, to cleanse the temple? The uh, chief priests were the ones who were in charge of the temple. They were the Sadducees, Uh, The scribes tended to be Pharisees and men who handled the law. Then you had the elders who were the head of tribes in Israel. And so all these men uh, carried some authority. Uh, in, In fact, in their society, they carried the highest authority in their area, as much as they could under the Romans. And so they come to Jesus, and they're offended by the fact that he has come in and cleansed the temple and driven people out, which people that had been there under their authority, people that were doing what they were doing with their permission. And so he comes in and he drives them out and they ask the question essentially, what kind of authority do you think you have is the first part of the question. What do you think you have the right to do? I mean, obviously in one sense they were probably thinking, okay, he did this Yesterday, what is he going to do today? What kind of authority do you think you have? And what does that mean in terms of what you're going to do in the future? Then the question is, and where do you get that authority? What kind of authority do you have? And where does that come from? Now, Jesus doesn't come right out and answer their question because they're trying to trap him. They the religious leaders are not asking an honest question. They're not simply trying to get some information because they're just baffled by Jesus and they really want to understand and they really want to respond rightly to him. That's not what's going on. And we know that because it says in verse 47, the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him in chapter 19, verse 47. So the lead-in to this story is highlighting the fact that these, these guys aren't coming with just honest questions. They're asking questions in light of what Jesus is doing because they're trying to trap him. They're trying to get him to say something that the crowd will take issue with. Jesus knows that, and so he doesn't play into that. And so he does something that would often happen in rabbinic debates. Uh, One rabbi would ask a question, and uh, another rabbi would ask a question in response. And so it wasn't unusual for that to happen. But the interesting thing is, what Jesus is doing is, in one sense, he's not directly answering their question, but indirectly answering their question. Because he says, I'm going to ask you a question. And then, you know, if you answer my question, then I'll answer your question. And the question he asked was, what do you think about John the Baptist? Where did his authority come from? Who did he speak for? What do you think about him? Now, why would Jesus ask that question? What does John the Baptist have to do with Jesus cleansing the temple or Jesus exercising authority? Well, John the Baptist was the one who said, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Messiah. There's one coming after me who's Uh, Sandals I am not worthy to untie. There's one coming after me who is greater than I am. And he's the one that we've been waiting for. He's the Messiah. And the Messiah has divine authority. Because the Messiah comes from God and represents God. Well, the Jewish leaders realize that there's a problem with trying to answer the question because they did not receive John's testimony. They did not receive what John said. And yet, they were very much uh, poll watchers, kind of like modern politicians today. Um, They checked the polls and they realized, you know, uh, the people really like John the Baptist. And they think he was a good guy. They think, in fact, he was from God. And if we say that we don't believe he was from God... Our poll numbers are going to drop. Our popularity is going to drop and we might even be stoned for thinking something different than what the crowds think. And so they weigh their options. Do, do we affirm what John the Baptist said about Jesus by saying, yes, John the Baptist was from God and oh, he happened to say that Jesus was from God, i.e. the Messiah. Do we affirm that or do we say no and risk getting stoned? And so they do what we probably have all done growing up as little kids, you know. We we argue that we just don't know. So did you did you have anything to do with that over there, Johnny? Uh, I don't know anything about that. I don't know I don't know. I don't know what happened. I, I just don't know. Now, does that mean that when we say we don't know, we really don't know? No, it means we don't want to say. Little kids often do that. We as adults can do that. In fact, these adults did that. They said, we don't know, but they really did know. They knew exactly what they thought about John the Baptist. And we know from Jesus' response that he knew that they had an opinion. They just weren't willing to say what it was, and that's why... He responded by saying, nor will I tell you. Basically, he was saying, you're you're just choosing not to tell me what you think, and so I'm not going to tell you what I think either. I'm not going to answer your question. You won't answer my question. But my point is, he didn't answer it in one sense, but in another sense, he did answer it. He said, if you listen to John the Baptist, then you know where my authority comes from. You know on Whose authority I'm acting. All you have to do is receive the testimony of the man that you've, up to this point, refused to receive his testimony. And then what Jesus does is not only does he point them to look at John the Baptist, he says, Now listen to this parable. Now, in verse 9, he says he told the parable to the people, but at the end, It says in verse 19, the religious leaders understood that he spoke this parable against them. So the religious leaders are there, but the crowds are there too. There's a sense in which he's talking to the people because he's warning them about the religious leaders and the way they're abusing their authority and how they're rejecting his authority. At the same time, he's talking to the religious leaders and warning them about what the consequence will be of their continued abuse of their authority and their continued rejection of his authority. And so he tells this story. And he tells a story of something that was very familiar. In Galilee, especially in that area of northern Israel, there were a lot of large estates that were owned by foreigners people who didn't live on those estates, that lived in other countries, in other places. And they would hire farmers, um, sharecroppers, those who would work the land and would basically sign an agreement saying, we'll give you so much of the produce of this land. We'll keep part of it. It's going to be part of our pay and our reward for working the land, but we will make sure you get your part of the land as the owner. So this man does this, and at one point he says, Okay, it's time that I should begin re- receiving some um, produce from this vi- these vineyards that are being watched over by these farmers, these vineyard um, workers. And so he sends three slaves saying, Okay, we had an agreement. This is what I'm supposed to receive, so give me what is my due. And every single time they mistreat the slaves and they refuse to give the owner what is rightfully his. The slaves go back, it says, empty-handed. And so the owner says, what am I going to do about this situation? And he says, I think I know what I'll do. Certainly, if they don't respect my slaves, certainly they'll respect my son. And so I'll send my son so that I can receive what is rightfully mine from them. And as the story goes, just as we read, the son goes, and they think, they see him coming, and a lot of people in reading this um, parable will say, it appears that somehow in their mind they thought that maybe the owner had died. Because the owner doesn't come himself, the son of the owner comes. So they think, well, maybe the owner died, he's sending his son, and there was a law that said if the owner of a property died and he had no heir, then those who are working that area could, and if they laid claim to it first, could own that property. So if there was no owner, he had no heir, the sharecroppers could lay claim to the land and it would be theirs. And so in the story, uh, The sharecroppers see the son, they say, let's kill him, and then we can lay claim to the property. That's what they try, he is killed, and then it says, um, the question is raised by Jesus, after they kill the son, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And he says, he will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. And the crowd, and especially, I think, the religious leaders, basically cry out, No way! God forbid! It's the same term that Paul uses in Romans several times. No way! God forbid! May that never happen! Now the question is, why would they respond to a story like that? Because the vineyard in the Old Testament is a reference to Israel. And in Isaiah 5, there's a a story about the vineyard, and I'll just highlight just a small portion of that, just to let you see. But in Isaiah 5, verse 7, it says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant goes on to say, Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. And if you read the whole passage, it's talking about the fact that God has chosen Israel to be his vineyard, so to speak. And he's done everything to make that vineyard profitable and productive. And yet all it's done is produced, produced worthless weeds and and other things. And so it's a picture, the the whole picture of the vineyard is about the nation of Israel as God's chosen nation. And so when Jesus says, you know what's going to happen? When those in authority over the vineyard kill the son, God's going to give the vineyard the place as a chosen nation of God or by God to another nation. That's why they cried out, no way, that can't be the case. And yet, that's exactly what happened. The Bible tells us that these very religious leaders, within the week, were going to be a part of the murder of Jesus. And the Bible tells us that as a result, um, God transferred, so to speak, his the privileges of being God's people from the nation of Israel, in a sense, to the church, to all those who are trusting in Jesus, both Jew and Gentile. And that's the picture of what, of what we see there. And so, we have these two authorities here that are, competing for people's hearts and we have jesus basically answering the question of authority by saying if you listen to john the baptist you'll know my authority is from god and if you listen to this story you know that the owner of the vineyard is god and the one that you're planning on killing is the son namely me i am the son of the owner And you're planning to kill me. It's amazing how often Jesus essentially told them what they were about to do and warned them about what they were going to do. And it still made no difference. Even at the end of this story in verse 19, it says the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour. Remember, they came into this wanting to destroy him, to kill him. And they feared the people. Well, they understood that he spoke this parable against them, which means it made no difference. Their intent to destroy him was not changed by his basically saying, you know, this is what's really happening here. My father is the owner of the vineyard, which is Israel. You sharecroppers, as the religious leaders, are intending to kill the son and there there are going to be serious consequences to that. And that's why he quotes from Psalm 118 in verses 17 and then elaborates that on that in verse 18 when he says, in verse 17, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Who are the builders? The builders are a reference to the leaders, those in authority in Israel they reject the stone chosen by God, a a choice uh, cornerstone, Peter would say. And this stone that's rejected by the religious leaders is going to become the chief foundation stone for the building of God. And he warns them by saying Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Now what does that mean? That means, first of all, that if you oppose this stone, you're going to be broken to pieces. And if you're judged by this stone, you will be scattered like dust. Either way, you're not going to win. It's a warning. And the encouraging thing about that is God never has to warn anyone. If they do something wrong, then they deserve the consequences. It is an act of mercy and grace and love for God to warn you. And that's what he was doing for these religious leaders. He was warning them, As you recall, in chapter 19, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem while he's forecasting their judgment. And so we see here, again, Jesus, even in dealing with these religious leaders that he knows by the end of the week are going to be a part of his murder, he continues to warn them. He continues to say that you, you need to understand what's going on here. You're fighting against a stone that cannot be overcome. Indeed, you're fighting against a stone that is intended to be your refuge. The, the picture of the rock in the Old Testament is one of my favorite pictures of God. In fact, it may be my favorite picture of God beyond just the, like the Father or other, other pictures, but in terms of inanimate objects. I love the picture of God as my rock my sure foundation as someone that I can get underneath who hides me in the shelter of the rock and he protects me from whatever I need to be protected from and he rescues me. The picture of the rock or the picture of the stone in the Old Testament is a picture of rescue and comfort and safety and provision. And yet, Jesus says, if you reject... The rock, if you reject the stone, the consequence will be terrible. And it'll be terrifying. And so, what's the issue here? The issue is authority. Do the religious leaders really want to submit to Jesus' authority? Obviously not. Obviously not. And so, it's kind of like the story that I've told before, and it's actually a true story. Evidently, there was a guy named Frank Koch who was a part of the Navy, and he was on a battleship, and he writes, in, I think, in one of his um, journals or one of his reports or of some kind, he talks about the fact that uh, this battleship, as you might recall, is in a foggy um, area. Uh, visibility is very, very low, but they see a light in the distance, And so the captain of the battleship basically says, communicate with whoever that is or whatever that is out there and and tell them they need to change course 20 degrees. And so you've got this conversation going back and forth, and um, the response to the captain of the battleship is essentially, uh, I would advise that you change course 20 degrees. And the captain is getting a little irritated. and He he says, send back to that, that ship. I'm a captain, you need to do what I say, change course 20 degrees. And the guy comes back and says, I'm a seaman, second class, Uh, you better change course 20 degrees. Finally, the, the captain is almost irate and says, I'm not only a captain, I'm a battleship, and you're in trouble if you don't change course. And the guy comes back and says, I'm a lighthouse, you need to change course. And in that context, a lighthouse was probably on a rock. (laughs) Excuse me. That wasn't going to be moved. And so if you decide, you know what? I'm not moving. I'm not changing. I'm keeping my course. The Seaman's second class said, then you will be basically confirming your own destruction. Because this lighthouse isn't going to move. It's the same kind of thing that's going on here. When you think about the issue of authority, and especially when you think of the issue of ultimate authority, God is God. He's not going to change. He's not going to go out of existence. He has always been, he will always be. He's infinite, he's eternal, he's unchangeable, he's ever-present, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's always been, he always will be. He is the rock that is not going to move. And yet, he says, it's in your best interest that you change. If you don't change, then there's going to be a collision and you're not going to get the best end of the, the deal. So that's why I started by asking the question, basically, who in your life or what in your life has the right to initiate change or to exercise control over your life? Because... um. That is the real authority in your life. And when I ask that question, I ask it in terms of, and you're glad that that's the case. There are plenty of times we submit to authority, but we don't do so gladly. We do so because we have to, because we recognize the consequences will be greater than whatever benefit we think we might get by bucking the authority. Going back to what I said before, God, who is in authority, exercises that authority not abusively. It was the religious leaders who were abusing their authority. In fact, the history of Israel was those in authority killing God's representatives, God's prophets. God keeps over and over again telling them, this is what you need to do for your own good. This is what you need to do so that you have joy and peace and happiness in me. This is what you need to do so you can be free from the evil and the suffering that you're causing yourself. And they kept killing the prophets over and over again until it got to the point where they actually killed the son, the last one that was sent. What is amazing here, and I need to wrap this up very quickly, and one of the things that just stands out in this whole thing is um, how reluctant we are to see things differently. Um, for, for thousands of years, Aristotle's view that if you had two objects which were of different weight and you drop them from a high uh, point, uh, the heavier object would hit first. They thought that for a long, long time. And then finally Galileo came along and said, hey, let's test this. Let's go up to the Leaning Tower of Pisa and I'm going to put a 10-pound weight and a 1-pound weight and I'm going to shove them off. And you guys stand down there at the bottom and you tell me which one hits first. And that's what they did. And the guys there, they were professors, educated men just like Galileo. And so they watched Galileo do this you've got this one-pound weight and ten-pound weight that hit at the exact same time. And those men still refused to believe their eyes. They still said, nope, Aristotle's right. The heavier object will always hit before the, the lighter one. We can have evidence right in front of our eyes, but if there is a reason why we don't want to submit to what we see, We will find that reason. The religious leaders knew that to submit to Jesus' authority would be to give up their own. And they refused to do that. That's the way it is for all of us. In order for me to submit to Jesus' authority, I have to give up my own. And I may not see that as preferable. I might rather live under the illusion that another authority would be better for me than the one who truly exists. And so there's so much in this passage, but basically it focuses on the issue of authority and a competition between authority and how Jesus is basically saying that his authority is the kind of authority that Sheba the Queen of Sheba talked about. It's intended for your good. It's intended to to love you. And yet, if we reject that authority, that same stone that was meant to protect you and shelter you in the storm will actually crush you in a just judgment, not an unrighteous judgment. So how does that apply as we wrap this up? Well, for anyone listening that hasn't ever submitted and bowed the knee to Jesus, we need to hear this as a warning that says, to reject the authority of Jesus is to embrace your own destruction. That's what it says. That's the sober truth of what Jesus is saying, but it's a warning that means, but that doesn't have to be your fate. That doesn't have to be your end. That doesn't have to be how it works out because the book of Luke was written, as Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. I haven't come to condemn, I've come to save. And that's why he said what he said, that's what he, why he preached what he preached, and that's why he did what he did. He was calling people to repentance calling people to say, God, I surrender to you. You are the one who has the right to initiate change in my life. You are the one who has the right to exercise control over my life. I trust in what you've done for me in Christ, and I submit myself to you. And I believe there could be no better place to be than in that place. For those of us who have bowed the knee to Jesus, there are plenty of people around us who have not. And are we praying for them? Are we sharing the gospel with them? Are we longing to see them go to Jesus as a refuge rather than one day standing for, before Jesus as their judge? Let us pray for those around us and let us share the gospel as God gives us the opportunity to, that they might bow the knee to Jesus because that is the only way we can be rescued from destruction and, and we can be truly satisfied in God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that, that encourages us to think about the things we need to think about. There are so many things on our hearts and minds, I'm sure, this morning. Very practical things, relational things. But there's really no other, no more important issue than... Who is the authority in our lives? Who's the one that is Lord of our lives? Who's the one that we submit to and honor and seek to trust and obey? Because that will impact all of our lives in every way. And indeed is so crucial for us to see and to receive the truth about that. And we thank you that as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper that we Rejoice in a Savior who came to deliver us from our failure to honor God as our authority as we should and has come to enable us to do just that. Father, please prepare us for this time in worship and and just apply it to our hearts and help us to see that you, in contrast to many, many others, exercise your authority to love us and to satisfy us in Yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.